Good afternoon, everyone. My paper's here in order. The message today is, you could look at as a, a sermon study, or a study sermon, either way. We're going to look at a mystery that is really not a mystery to most of us, but it is to much of the world. In Matthew 28, 19, which I don't have uh, we're back here on the screen, but it says to go ye therefore into all the world and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit as we know the Greek word to me. So we're going to look at the mystery of the Trinity. It's a doctrine that teaches that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all are one. Now that one and all, and all in one concept, is difficult to explain by believers, by those who uh, look at the doctrine of Trinity as a, a real doctrine. But uh, they say the difficulty to explain it is because it is just one of the mysteries of God. As I earlier stated, it's really not a mystery to those of us that uh, understand what the Holy Spirit is. So we ask ourselves, well, why the difficulty? Why the mystery? And if you look at 1 Peter 3.15, and I, I don't have that one written down to, but I'll read it to you. It says that we are to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So there is a right approach to those that ask of the reason that it is the hope that is in us and to do it in such a way as like the earlier message was in a, in a nice way, not a way that is uh, uh, contentious. In verse 16, it says, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So sometimes when uh, there are varying uh, differences in doctrine, uh, the idea is that, well, you're, uh, that's not according to what we believe. So there has to be an approach that is uh, when someone asks to explain something that uh, we need to know what it is you're explaining and why it is. I want to read to you from uh, the Cornerstone Encyclopedia of Bible Knowledge, and you may remember some of this uh, uh, content here as one that I gave some, some time ago. I don't, I don't know if it's years ago or maybe even last week, but it's the Cornerstone Encyclopedia of Bible Knowledge. What it does is it summarizes the doctrine of the Trinity as an absolute mystery. That's absolute mystery in, in quotation. Now, most church pastors, theologians, lay members, they all tend to agree that it's an absolute mystery. Some even explain that the Trinity does not mean 
three persons in the ordinary sense, but are personal distinctions of one God. Yet it adds, the concept of God cannot be fully understood. So we see why it, it is a mystery uh, to, and somewhat difficult for those who believe to explain. So hopefully this sermon study will help us to see it a little bit more clearly. Billy Graham wrote in his book, The Holy Spirit, uh, in 1978, he said, we accept the fact that the Holy Spirit is God just as much as God the Father and God the Son. But when it comes to explaining it, we are at a loss. The elements uh, of mystery in this make it difficult for the human mind to comprehend fully. So this mystery is one that the, uh, the human mind just can't comprehend to its full extent. Now from the New Concise Bible Dictionary, uh, it defines a trinity as a doctrine that makes three affirmations, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is each God, that each one is a distinct person, and that there is only one God. Now, we ask ourselves, well, how can that be when we read in Colossians 3.1, Colossians 3.1, uh, where it says that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, indicating, implying that there are two distinct beings, side by side. So that at least indicates three or two separate personages. But if the Holy Spirit is the third person, we ask ourselves logically, well, where does it sit? Or where does he sit? Some of you may have a Dake's uh, annotated Bible which has a lot of good, helpful information about word studies and so on. Uh, even he wrote, he says that, that he claims that there are 89 proofs of a, of a divine trinity. So if you looked at each proof, you, you would have, have to ask yourselves, well, are we going to have to go through 89 uh, proofs and counterproofs and to, in order to arrive at the truth? But here's what he said. What we mean by divine trinity is that there are three distinct, distinct persons in the Godhead, each one having his own personal spirit body, a, a personal soul, and personal spirit. In the same sense, each human being, angel, or, other, or any other being has his own body, soul, and spirit. That's on page uh, 280 of his annotated reference uh, Bible. Again, we look at some of these references as reasons why people look at the Trinity as being uh, a, a real truthful doctrine. From 1973, Richard DeHaan, he wrote, For many years, churches in their preaching and teaching have sadly overlooked the the mystery of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, the Holy Spirit is a mystery. In fact, so little has been emphasized in this area that he might be called the neglected person of the Godhead. That's from The Holy Spirit in You by uh, Richard W. D. Hahn in a Bible class booklet, page 1, October 1973. 
So the Holy Spirit, it seems, or is written, or is uh, told us, is the neglected person of the Godhead that people have yet to understand and give recognition to. In 1 Corinthians 14.33, it says that God is not the author of confusion. So when you hear the Holy Spirit being explained as uh, in, in a Trinitarian doctrine way, you, you see how at, in one point that it is a person, in another it's something that is a mystery. So there's, there's some confusion in the, uh, there. In Jeremiah 9 and in verse 24, the scripture declares, it says to let him that glorieth glory in uh, in this, that he understands and knows me. So that's what the glory of, you know, understanding God's word is about. Glorying in that, in the fact that they understand and uh, know God and his word. So his word, as we know, it says in Second uh, Timothy 3.16 to study and show yourself a workman rightly dividing the word of truth and to prove all things. That's one of the things that we are oftentimes called upon to do when some people ask us, well, why do you keep the holy days and why do you believe this or that? You have to know the word of God in order to divide the word of truth, rightly divide it, and to prove all things. We know that it says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. So we have to do this in order to understand and know all this about God. But we know also that people see things quite differently. The roots of the Trinity, we know that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. Neither is divine Trinity. Those are man-made expressions. There was a writer an early church uh, father, or Tertullian, uh, he was the first person, the first person to use the word in reference to God. So if you're taking notes, you, in that little section there, that little area there, you might want to take that name down and what he did, and, you know, uh, don't believe me, believe, you know, uh, uh, other sources that will confirm some of these things that uh, we look at today. But this word Trinity, the concept of Trinity, did not become a church doctrine until the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. That was 300 years after Jesus Christ. In 425 A.D., the belief was put into a, a creed called the Athanasian Creed, which declared that there are three forms in which the divine essence exists. Today, that creed is regarded as the fundamental doctrine for the Christian belief in the Trinity. But it was a Theophilus, all these Greek names of Antioch, who wrote about the Trinity in 180 AD. And in the writing, which is called Anti-Nicene Fathers, Theophilus to Autolycus, I believe that's the way he pronounced his name, he states, the three days which were before the luminaries are types of the trinity of God and his word and his wisdom. That statement led many to think 
that he was referring to God as a trinity. So that's how the popular belief in this word trinity came about. However, there is a footnote from the editors of the church, of, the, of that publication. They explained that uh, the word translated wisdom is from a Greek word, the Greek word Sophia, which Theophilus used elsewhere in reference to the Son and not the Holy Spirit. And uh, this uh, uh, explanation was uh, from a book entitled Is God a Trinity? George Johnson from the Ambassador College Press in 1973. Now, when did uh, the Trinity belief begin? When did it begin? It began long before Jesus Christ, long before the time of Jesus Christ. Because ancient pagans also believed in a triune God, even adopting a triangular symbol to represent the concept. In the two Babylons, I think we have one back there in the library by Alexander Hislop, where it is quoted, in the unity of that one, that one only God of the Babylonians, there were three persons. So in the Babylonian concept of God, they believed that he was three persons. And to symbolize the doctrine of the Trinity, they employed, as the discoveries of layered proof, the equilateral triangle. So you have, you know, you have this equilateral triangle. Sometimes you see that on, on books or, or uh, symbols indicating or showing that uh, the symbol of the Trinity. Egypt also used the triad as a symbol of their uh, triform divinity. Now, images of a triune God is even depicted in some Romish churches with three heads on one body, just as the ancient Babylonians portrayed it. And similar images may be found in the religious religions of India and among Buddhist worshipers. So such images show that recognition of a trinity was universal in all ancient nations of the world. And so the same concept found its way in today's uh, Christianity in describing the Christian God. I know that this a sermon study, some of you will probably, uh, you know, uh, get a little weary-eyed and listening, but uh, just remember, you'll wake up refreshed, I think. Did Christ teach the Trinity? Another question you can ask. They believe, the Trinitarians believe, that Jesus himself taught the Trinity. When he said in John 14, uh, 11, he said, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? And then in John 14, in verse 16 through 17, he said, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. So all of these things, all of these concepts are just blending in into one. So, as I read earlier in Matthew uh, 28, 19, they believe that Christ's commission to his disciples alludes to the divine trinity. 
in the rites of baptism. When uh, it, it says, you know, go ye therefore into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, And we saw where the word name uh, could be in authority of or in honor of because we know that the Holy Spirit does not have a name. But if Jesus really taught this, one is left with the impression that the Holy Spirit is a person when you read that particular scripture and is as important as God the Father and Christ the Son. So when you see uh, God the Father and God the Son and you see the Holy Spirit, that w would indicate that the Holy Spirit as a person would be just as important as both of them. The Holy Spirit, <clears throat> as this one evangelist wrote, and I uh, think it was Billy Graham, but he wrote the Holy Spirit was active in creation along with the Father and the Son and the breath uh, where it says in Job 33, 4, and this is what he uh, was used, the breath of God that started man on his earthly journey was in fact the Holy Spirit because as Job 34 tells us, so we, he, this is, we learned this indirectly, he says. So the Spirit of God that uh, uh, has made uh, me and the breath of the Almighty, he has given me life. When uh, God formed man of the dust of the ground, the Holy Spirit, we see, was involved as the person that was active in creation. But the most compelling scripture that Trinitarians use for the existence of the Holy Spirit as a person is 1 John 5, 7. It says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. So in looking at that first glance, it's saying these three are one, then naturally it, it seems to imply that these three are just one, and these one are just are three. So in the section these three are one, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three uh, uh, that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. That's in verse 8 of, of that verse John. So what many Bible readers may not be aware of is that 1 John 5, 7 is, is spurious. It, it's false. It's fake. It was added to Scripture. A verse we see was added between verse 7 and then verse 8. Bible scholars declare it to have never been a part of the inspired text or canon of the New Testament because it first appeared in a late 4th century Latin text. Then it found its way into the Latin Vulgate and then into the New Testament of Erasmus and into the King James translation. So I know that this, uh, there's a lot of connections that are to be made here and I um, apologize if I'm not explaining it as, as uh, clearly as uh, possible, but uh, sometimes it is kind of a, a mystery to me how all of these things can come about and then you make the connection and it comes out the way some people believe and, and the way we don't believe. So, uh, so just uh, bear with me if, if you can.
In fact, 1 John 5, 7 was written around the same time as belief in a Christian trinity began in the 3rd and 4th century. So we ask ourselves, well, why this addition? Because it's presumed to be an attempt to explain the, uh, this text in a Trinitarian manner. You know, to fit uh, the concept, to fit the belief. Older versions of the New Testament omit this gloss of, in the verse uh, 7 text. A commentary called the New Bible Commentary says, the words are clearly a gloss and are rightly excluded from the Revised Standard Version. So if you see the Revised Standard Version, you'll see how it is written. Again, Peake's commentary on the Bible. They also agree with that, saying, no respectable Greek manuscript contains it. In fact, as late as the 8th century AD, the only Greek manuscript which supported the words in 1 John 5-7 are Montfortinus of Dublin, copied from the mo modern Latin Vulgate, Ravianus, which was copied from the Camlutensian polyglot. So all of these words, this is, this is in, uh, Jameson Fawcett and Brown commentary. So all of these words I know can, can add a little bit to the confusion or mystery if you want to call it that. So Bible scholars nevertheless have concluded that the words of 1 John 5, 7 were added by a monk who accepted the Trinity doctrine and sought to clarify the mysterious belief in the Trinity by adding it to scripture. Years ago when uh, was uh, in a sermon that I was listening to long ago uh, about the Trinity, where you, read, uh, for, uh, where you read these scriptures, 5, 7, and 8, I remember uh, indicating on the, in, the bar, in the margins of the Bible that this, one should not, this scripture should not uh, be here. But it was added by a monk who accepted the Trinity doctrine and who sought to clarify the mysterious belief at, in the Trinity by adding it to the scripture, in, like in the King James. But many modern translations mentioned one, the Revised Standard Version, uh, the Living Bible, the Moffat Translation, and the Phillips Translation all correctly omit verse 7. So the concept of the Trinity, however, nevertheless, is a revered tradition. It's mentioned in weddings, it's mentioned in, in uh, sermons, but the idea stems from a doctrine that is rooted in old pagan beliefs. So, in looking at 1 John 5, verses 6 through 8, it should read, verse 6, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus the Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And in verse 7, and it is the Spirit that bears witness, because the Spirit is the truth. And in verse 8, for there are three that bear witness on the earth spirit of and the water and the blood and these three witness unto the one truth the next section the Holy Spirit explained ever how one takes these verses to read we can know this that the Holy Spirit is never acknowledged in the Bible as a person 
in Romans 1 7 it says to all that be in Rome beloved of God called to be saints grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ now if the Holy Spirit is an important person with God and Christ as many believe why is he neglected in these salutations so that oversight is true in other epistles that are written such as 1 Corinthians 1 3 where it says grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ so you see the Holy Spirit if he is a person is being left out of the salutation so if the Holy Spirit is a person with a body, with a soul, with a spirit, <clears throat> as why is he neglected? So the point is, throughout all of Scripture, the Holy Spirit is never addressed or prayed to even. Luke one thirty-five tells us that Christ's mother was impregnated by the Holy Spirit but that does not explain the Holy Spirit as a person because when Christ prayed we remember this prayer in uh, Matthew uh, 26 39 uh, when he when he prayed he addressed his prayer to God calling him father calling him my father so if the Holy Spirit is a person would not he be Christ's father? Yet Christ does not call the Holy Spirit his, his father. So there are other places where, as in one verse it says, and every plant which my father has not planted shall be rooted up. So he calls God the Father his father. In the words of the angel to Christ's mother, Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 35, he says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So here we see the Holy Spirit is defined as the power of the highest and that Christ was to be called the Son of God and not the Holy Spirit. Christ made that clear saying I came forth of my father and how did he come forth it says by the power of God's Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit is of God not is God the Holy Spirit comes from God as a power and that emanates from him it is his divine nature imparted as a gift to those who ask Luke 11 chapter 13 uh, verse 13 it says if you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him so the Holy Spirit we see is a power that is given by God and it is given as a gift given as a, a gift the gift of the Holy Spirit, however, is contingent, as we see, upon uh, repentance. In Acts 2.38, it says, To repent and be baptized 
every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So God is the source of the Holy Spirit, his power. The word spirit is from the word, that word pneuma, meaning wind or breath, which is an unseen force. It describes a power emanating from, from God, just as, you know, electricity emanates from uh, a power plant from, you know, somewhere, and it comes through the walls and comes through the lights that we have here. It emanates as a power. So when one truly repents, when one asks for forgiveness, he receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. So with that repentance come, comes a commitment to live in the Holy Spirit, to live by his words with minds that are open to receive God's implementation of the Holy Spirit upon baptism. Along with it comes God's holy power, comes with his righteous character, his strength, and also knowledge. So it is a power to change one's life and to lead them uh, in a holy and a righteous way as long as we uh, obey the, the Holy Spirit through his word. In Hebrews 8 and 10, it says uh, that he promised that uh, I will put my laws into their mind and write them into their heart. So when we uh, go along in this life, the power of the Holy Spirit, the law written into our minds and in our hearts, will bring to memory if we we're about to do something wrong, that still small voice is not going to grab you and twist you by the wrist and not let you go. It is something that we have a choice whether to obey or not to obey, uh, considering the laws that God has given us. Like, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. If that thought comes into the mind, you know, the Holy Spirit says, don't do that or don't steal. Do things uh, or do things contrary to the Ten Commandments. So through the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit, the Christian's guiding force and spiritual conscience that makes them a child. It's what makes them a child, begotten of God. Now there is a danger because the Spirit can be quenched. It's when the law of God and His nature, His righteous commands are ignored. And instead of stopping ourselves from stealing or lying or doing things, things of that sort, that we quench the Holy Spirit and just go opposite those things. So the spirit can be quenched. There's a spirit, the spirit is a, kind of an unseen force. It is an unseen uh, thing that uh, one can experience uh, at, a, at a pep rally or a patriotic rally. The music can stir you up and somewhere on the inside of your mind and heart you begin to feel the energy of that particular spirit. There's a spirit that uh, can be good. There's a school spirit. There's a corporate spirit. There's a nationalistic spirit, uh, spirit or a political spirit that inspires a certain attitude and conduct, uh, uh, behavior among a certain group. So, so does the Holy Spirit of God in a holy and righteous way as a motivating source of hope, a motiv motivating source of strength and, and vitality to those who walk in it. 
Because there are times in our life when we feel like we don't have the spirit, we don't have the strength, we don't have the merriment, we don't have the feelings that come with the Holy Spirit when things are adverse, or we might feel, you know, the weather gets us down, or, or our mood is getting us down. That is when we have to call, we have to stir up the spirit, pray to God to help him, to help us change our attitude, our mind, and get refocused. And once that comes, you begin to realize, you know, the Spirit of God is moving me in a good direction today. Or just before you go to sleep, you realize, you know, uh, God has done something today that has given me a joy or a spirit to continue to live in. So converted Christians, like you and I, we have the habitation of God through his spirit, which is evidenced by our walking in the fruits of his spirit. Which, you know, you can see those in the book of Galatians. But God's spirit, having it, it does not take away one's freedom of choice. Because it is possible for one to grieve or to deny the Holy Spirit or quench it, that is, put it out. The spirit must be stirred up or God may take it away from those who continually neglect its guidance. In Psalm 51, verse 11, we see sometimes this as a concern. Where it says there, cast me not away from thy presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. God has given us the Holy Spirit to not only save us, but to, to use and to not neglect, to not neglect so great a salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 19, quench not the Spirit. Simple words. So, as we go along in this life, and a choice is there between doing good or doing wrong. That verse should tell us, quench not the spirit. Don't put it out. Don't neglect it. So, <clears throat> we see that the Holy Spirit is not a separate being, but it is the power, the vitality, and the mind of God in holy and righteous character, which, you know, we have to grow in in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. So, if the Holy Spirit is not a person, then why is it referred to, as we see in the next section, why is it referred to as comforter? Or as he in, in Scripture. Before Christ returned to heaven, in John chapter 14, he said to his disciples, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, either knows him, but you know him. See, it's referring to the Holy Spirit as a he or as a him or as a person. For he dwells in you and shall be in you. Then in John chapter 15. But when the comforter is come, when, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the spirit of truth which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. 
So you can see as you continue along in these scriptures how the Holy Spirit is referred to as he throughout. Which, you know, leads, you know, uh, to uh, uh, the belief that, you know, the, uh, the Holy Spirit is a person. John 16, verse 7. I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Again, you know, him, the pronoun, dead of, uh, of the Holy Spirit being it, or not a person. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. So when someone would ask, well, what's the reason for the, uh, for the reason of the hope that is in you? And they refer to all these scriptures. You can see how it would be difficult for you, for us, to, you know, counter uh, the way most people look at these scriptures. So, if you look here, scripture refers to the comforter as what? It refers to it as the spirit of truth. Though it uses the pronouns he and him and himself. The word comforter means counselor, intercessor, advocate, supporter. But that does not mean that the Holy Spirit is a person. It identifies the Holy Spirit as a power or an attitude a Christian can draw upon in times of need. You need counseling or a counselor. You need an intercessor or an advocate or a supporter. When we uh, have our, our prayers for those who are sick, we make intercessory prayers for those. It's a power that we call upon and you know sometimes we think well it's just word it's just a prayer but you know God hears he hears he hears his children when they pray to him so it is a power the Holy Spirit is a power that that uh, sanctifies his children through uh, through the word that is his truth which is his spirit because uh, John 17 70 says thy word is true and that they, as Christ said, verse 21 there, I don't, don't have that there, but it's, he said that all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be one in us. So the Apostle Paul said of those at Corinth, call to be saints, said we have the mind of Christ. So Christians possess the same spiritual attitude or spirit of truth as Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. In Romans 12, 12, it says that we are to be, tra be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that change can only take place by allowing the operation of God's spirit in a process of conversion and overcoming. So there are, are more studies, there's a little bit more to these things that I am not going to cover today and maybe in a later 
sermon up here, I will, be, I will finish it up. But right now, let's end with this scripture. Be transformed, transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is a change that can only take place in us.